0: I'm Sherry Sylvester, and welcome to Ninth in Congress. On June 14th, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the Texas Anti-DEI Bill into law to close down so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion offices on every Texas University campus. In the months that have followed, Texas universities have signaled that they are making efforts to comply with the law while also making it clear that they want nothing to change on their campuses. Senate Bill 17, the anti-DEI bill, excludes all university research, and there are indications at the University of Texas that they may attempt to roll all university-sponsored DEI activism under the rubric of use of research. Texas A&M just released a 47-page list of guidance on how to navigate the DEI law, which includes explaining that, quote, a university may train recruitment staff on cultural competence that will assist them in recruiting students from certain identity groups, race, sex, ethnicity, which is, of course, exactly what Senate Bill 17 prohibits. Professors can still use DEI statements in their syllabi at A&M and help students get into DEI-focused programs. Because students and teaching topics are not addressed in Senate Bill 17, segregated graduations for African Americans and LGBTQ students at A&M will still be allowed, and identity-defined organizations can continue there. During the legislative debate over DEI, the revelations of wokeness and DEI-centered principles at Texas A&M, perceived to be Texas' most conservative university, was central to the debate. So today, I'm going to talk with the top Aggie at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, (laughs) Greg Sindelar, our chief executive officer. We know TPPF from Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick is the most influential conservative think tank in the nation and the best think tank in the world. Greg was recently received the Overton Award from the Straight Policy Network for his embodiment of the qualities essential in the fight for freedom, leadership, loyalty, humility, and unfailing commitment to liberty. Greg has played the lead role in the massive growth of TPPF for more than a decade and a half, including the acquisition, financing, and development of our new headquarters here at 9th and Congress, the opening of our Washington, D.C. office, and most recently, the passage of over 80 legislative initiatives in the Texas legislature. Greg's basically in charge of everything, uh, policy, communications, engagement, and all with a BBA in finance from Texas A&M. My other colleague today, Dr. Tom Lindsay, is also joining us. Tom is a distinguished senior fellow for Next Generation Texas. He has more than two decades' experience in education management and instruction, including service as a dean, provost, and college president. The last session, he was a leader in the fight to reform tenure in Texas, reminding lawmakers that he'd had tenure three times and walked away from it every time. Dr. Lindsay earned his Ph.D. and an M.A. in political science and government from the University of Chicago and a B.A., summa cum laude, in political science from Northern Illinois University. He's just written a great white paper entitled DEI Tackles the Declaration of Independence uh, and the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, also the Constitution. If you haven't read it, go and do that right after this podcast. Greg, I was thinking that... In January of this year, you invited me to attend a meeting with the government affairs staff of Texas A and M. At which point, their goal—they had many goals, but mainly to get us to help them in the fight <laughs> to get a billion dollars, which the universities had asked a B, for, with, a B, <laughs> with a B, billion with uh, be with the threat that they would have to raise tuition if they didn't get this billion dollars. And when we asked them, kind of broached the subject about DEI and tenure, what what was their response?
1: <laughs> well, and, and and first, I want to say I'm a very proud Aggie. As if you go watch the uh, video about the Overton Award it spends a lot of time talking about my Aggie fandom. And it's a very been a very important part to to me personally, and I think defined a lot of my life. And so that's why I'm so passionate about this. And that's why I was so passionate to work with you, Sherry, and our team on, on, on these issues over a session. But when we went and met with uh, the A&M staff here in Austin and the legislative relations, government relations staff, I asked them point blank. I said, do you guys require DEI statements in hiring tenured professors and the answer was well not exactly we don't do it but we don't forbid it and and as we talked through it it was they came to the self-realization that well if we're not forbidding it then we are implicitly allowing it and and encouraging it and i think that's the problem right like these dei programs have taken over and and i would say changed the culture of a university that i think was extremely welcoming. Uh, my, is one of the main reasons I chose to go to a m was how welcoming it felt. I, 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 I had no uh, ties to A&M, or, nor to University of Texas, and those are the schools I was considering. I chose A&M because it felt like home, and it felt very welcoming. And it, based on what we're seeing at the campus and how students feel now, that's not the case. You know, we know in 2015 that a large percentage of or the, the vast majority of white students, black students, Hispanic students felt like they were part of the university. And today that's not the case, even though they've been instituting all of these DEI programs are supposed to make them feel a part of it. But what's really happening is they've been dividing the university and the students.
0: I I remember that we talked with our colleague uh, at the National Association of Scholars, Scott Yainer, who put out a a report uh, that kind of shook the Texas world, which was how A&M woke. And as I understand it, so this is hearsay, as we say in the trial, (laughs) but when that article came out, all hands on deck, everyone went into College Station, spent the entire weekend refuting every point uh, but it was it was all it was all technical refutations. Yes, Texas A and M did have as many DEI officers as the University of Texas. Yes, sixty percent of uh, applicants for professorships there were required to have DEI statements. So so not uh, not just uh, a little bit. So they have uh, they. Did their DEI office did say that they were not going to hire any more Asians? Yeah, which is which is
1: unbelievable, you know of, right? And kind of, you're you're not hiring people based on. Uh, certain characteristics that we we c- can't control. I, c- I can't control being white, just like you can't control being a woman. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can control now <laughs> if you're a woman or not. No, I'm kidding. But, My choice. <laughs> that's right. But I think I think that's the the important part. And I, I think the perplexing thing as an Aggie, as a proud Aggie, is. You know, I grew up with the mantra from my parents about, you know, it's the MLK mantra, right? Like you judge people by the the, the content of their character, not, not the color of their skin. But yet these programs are actually judging us more by the color of our skin than the content of our character. And, and it seems that not just at A and M, it's happening at universities across this country, but we we care more about these these other characteristics that we have no control over than we do about actually the merit and achievement that we should be worried about when it comes to people that we're bringing into our our universities. And so to me, it becomes this tyranny of low expectations where we're trying to sink all these boats in order to try to make them equal and have equal outcomes as opposed to working on on raising all the boats. Yeah.
0: So, Tom, you spent a lot of time on campuses and and know about the climate. I know we're not trying to pretend that this is only happening at Texas A&M. What what have you seen and what's the difference? I know one of our friends, Dr. Daniel Bonavac from the University of Texas, said that uh, DEI functions as thought police on campus.
2: No, that's exactly how it functions. Unfortunately, the universities were always dedicated to the idea that the pursuit of truth is the highest human activity. That's how they justify academic freedom right that this transcends politics that politics can't touch us because we're not about partisan politics we're about the truth but the universities have become in the last 50 or 60 years just partisan players and they've of course they don't have the same accountability that politicians have for it and question is, how did it get that way? How did we go from universities as the pursuit of truth and therefore cherishing freedom of speech and cherishing debate to today, where we have censorship, shout downs, cancellations? And the answer is that those who are pushing DEI and critical race theory, which is simply the content that DEI delivers, they have a different conception of human nature than did our founding fathers and, and then does most of us. And by that, I simply mean this. When the declaration says all human beings are created equal, they knew that we look different and have different capacities, et cetera. But what they said was the most important fact about humanity is what we share in common despite those differences. And what we share in common is equal rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What DEI teaches, because it's grounded in Marxism, is that it is not what unites us that is most important, but what separates us. So the doctrine of human equality in the declaration, meaning equality of opportunity, has been replaced by the unholy trinity of race, class, and gender, on the basis of which we are forever separate. So it's been said that the philosophy taught in the classroom in this generation will be the philosophy practiced in the legislature in the next generation. If you're teaching people that they're forever separate, that means they're going to have less interaction with each other. That means they're going to have less understanding of each other. With less understanding comes more hostility. With more hostility comes the possibility for violence. That's what DEI will erect if it isn't stopped.
0: Well. To push back a little bit, does Texas really have a leg to stand on here? I, uh, my husband is from the Northeast and uh, Northwest. And, you know, one of the stories <clears throat> that he tells was how, you know, watching these Texas teams that were segregated teams and mm-hmm. how they could, it, we were, you know, it took a long time to get the University of Texas segregated and A&M and other places. I mean, is there not, is this maybe... Are we seeing an overreaction here, or are they right, if left to our own devices?
2: It took a long time to live up to the Declaration of Independence and get those schools desegregated. Do we want to go back to segregation now, which is what's being called for by so-called anti-racist leaders, such as ex-Ibram Kendi? Mm-hmm. Right, who, in fact, here I have a quote from him. In fact, he's updated the quote because he says he's been attacked unfairly. He's facing a lot of internal
1: lot. strife right now. <laughs> he is. That's right.
2: Apparently, yes, that's true. And he says this is his new updated statement, which he thinks is going to make it better. And he says the only remedy to negative racist discrimination that produces inequity is positive anti-racist discrimination that produces equity. The only remedy to pass negative racist discrimination that's produced inequity is present positive anti-racist discrimination that produces equity the only remedy to present negative racist discrimination toward inequity is future positive anti-racist discrimination toward equity now all he did was add in the words positive anti-racist discrimination <laughs> so the initial statement was the only remedy to past discrimination is current discrimination and and for present future discrimination that statement is exactly the moral parallel of George Wallace's statement, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Mm-hmm. Only now, through DEI, the meaning of everyday words has been turned upside down so that now this is good discrimination, or as he says, anti-racist discrimination. And of course, the whole thing is equity, which DEI tries to promote as somehow in harmony with the Declaration's principle of equality, but they're actually exactly the opposite. James Madison in Federalist 10, the most famous of the Federalist essays, 85 essays on uh, uh, the Constitution, There, he, Madison encounters the proposal that to eliminate faction will homogenize passions and interests and opinions, make everybody the same. And Madison says that would be completely tyrannical because it misunderstands human nature. First fact about human nature is we have different talents, different opinions, different interests. The only way, Madison says, that you can eradicate that is to establish a tyrannical form of government. Well, here we are. Yeah. So, you know,
0: a uh, and African American enrollment at A and M has actually declined a little bit. And mm-hmm. um when you were there, uh I mean, is what is Hullabaloo you? Well it I mean, wasn't I'm, there I'm just, when I was there. <laughs> it wasn't there. So Hullabaloo was was not there. What what kind of orientation did you have when you were coming in? And was there separate graduations for African Americans? No. Were you in separate separate dorms, which is what we have now? Oh.
1: No, that wasn't my experience at all. I I think, you know, I think the part that's most offensive to me is that they've weaponized diversity. And, you know, something that I think it can be an, an intrinsic good, right? Like it, you want to uh, get to know people that have different backgrounds and different perspectives. You know, when I was in college, I, I did all kinds of things. I went and saw Noam Chomsky speak. Now, obviously, it didn't turn me into <laughs> some raging liberal, but I think being exposed to that was helpful in in, in uh, firming up what my actual belief systems were. And my experience was, you know, the literally the first person I met when I moved into my dorms was I was African-American and uh, later that year we worked Really hard to get him elected as the second African American Yale leader in A and M history. I mean, Yale leader a big deal. Yeah, Yale leader a big deal, oh, big, deal yeah. big deal, right? And the other big deal was he, I wasn't in the core. He was not in the core, so that's another big deal. Usually, the Yale leaders are are in the core, and we didn't do that because we were trying to chase some historical thing. We did that because he, <laughs> there was no one that loved A and M more than 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 he did, and we wanted to to work with him to do it. Came from very different background. His parents. were for uh, uh, African, he grew up in Houston, but um, uh, that was part of the uh, experience, orientation-wise. It, you know, I went to Fish Camp. Fish Camp was—they uh, literally threw everybody in this in this uh, camp out in East Texas for a couple of days, and you kind of get to know people. There's people from all stripes of, of from around the state. Uh, there. And I think it was a good way to get to know folks outside of just who you went to high school with mm-hmm. um, that was coming. And so I love that aspect of it. But, um, you know, even I know it's it's I think it's improving itself. But there was a time where fish camp was starting to become a little bit more segregated and focused on our differences as opposed to the things that unite us, which at the end of the day at a I thought what unites is we are all Aggies, you know, and I was, I was reading a, uh, articles as prepping for this and and someone said and I thought it was great African American said, she goes, I'm not black, I, I'm maroon. And that, that's ultimately, I think what we all want people uh, uh, seeing is like, we all share these things in common. And we uh, have assimilated together in this special culture, um, which has brought in all these uh, different backgrounds, rural, urban, and, and different races as well. But the way that they've started implementing these programs, it's actually started to Divide the student body, and people have felt like they are less a part of what is happening at A and M, which I think is really
0: sad. Yeah, we uh, I, a member of the student senate at A and M attended our victory summit, and uh, this past week, uh, and one of the things that he told us was that in the library, there's it's too crowded, people want to study in the library, and you've got people sitting on the floor and jammed in, and yet there are rooms that are segregated, I think it's important to use that word, for uh, LGBTQ students, so that they can study without fear, and there's never anybody in them. So this actually kind of breeds hostility, to people, okay. if you're standing there with a pile of your computer and everything, and you're looking for a desk, and and uh, but and that just seems nuts to me. Yes. On the yes. other hand, the the uh, head of the faculty senate told the Washington Post, and maybe this is one of the articles that you you uh, were discussing that with the passage of the DEI bill. And the failure of A and M to hire a new journalism professor, and I want to talk about that, that A part of A and M has died. The spirit of A and M has died.
1: Oh yeah, they did a moment of silence.
0: Right, the okay. moment of silence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> which which is ridiculous. You know, kinda of getting back to Tom's point, you know, this country AM is not a perfect institution. This country, the state we're not are not perfect. But I think what is so profound about the Principles that and that and the values that that set set our nation in motion and our state in motion is that we have a form of government that can allow us to fix wrongs and move together 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 mm-hmm. move forward together. And these programs are offensive because they are forcing us to move forward apart. And I think until we change that, we'll, we'll never fix anything, and we'll never be able to see eye to eye. You know, um, and that's. real shame. Like if if I went to uh, HBCU, I wouldn't want to be segregated from the culture of that university. Mm -hmm. I would want to integrate myself into that culture because that's the reason I chose to go there. And I would want to affect that culture, Mm -hmm. hopefully for positively. And uh, unfortunately, that's not happening right now.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things I want to talk a little bit about the Kathleen McElroy situation, not because that's important, but because of what we've revealed in the investigation of how the administration handled that, uh, and I think that that's very similar to what we're seeing in their 47 pages of guidelines, which is essentially how you can get around the DEI bill. They The... Um, a and m had not had a journalism school for 20 years. Mm-hmm. They decided to, to uh, reinvigorate it. They hired a uh, they reached out at, to a former student who had a, a, a great deal of journalism experience, a uh, solid candidate, a professor at the University of Texas. but they instead of they held on to the announcement until, after the legislative session was over, the DeI bill was passed, and uh, they got the billion dollars almost a billion dollars that uh, uh, that they were uh, hoping for to be appropriated and Then we find out that they they put this this woman out uh, without discussion with the Board of Regents mm-hmm. and she had a pretty uh, uh, pretty s- substantial uh, DEI uh, uh, piece of her resume was had been devoted to DEI, mm-hmm. uh, and so then they began to withdraw in stages, which was was why I think they got in so much trouble. Oh well, it's not a tenured position, but it'll be you'll be there for three years. Well, no, it's only one year. So they really treated her pretty badly mm-hmm. in, in that process. Uh, but the fallout is continuing. Mm-hmm. What What have you heard from people that you've talked to up there? I think
1: the biggest thing I've heard is is uh, kind of uh, a lot of people are flabbergasted. Of, well, how is this person even a, a, not just a finalist, but the candidate? You can understand why someone of that pedigree might be a candidate. But when you have someone you want to restart your journalism program, who has been saying things where you would, you know, kind of deprioritize certain voices just based on, you know, their the race or, you mm-hmm. know, their sexuality or things like that. You know, it's like, how's that if, if it, you know, journalism is about seeking the truth and, you know, academia is about seeking the truth, you know, well, it doesn't seem like you have somebody you're putting in place that is actually interested in seeking the truth, but is really trying to elevate a certain uh, position. And so I think mostly people are just wondering, like, how was this woman, um, outside the fact that she was a uh, an Aggie who had a very successful journalism career? the the candidate that we hired that's, that's i think the most mind-blowing thing to to most of the folks that i talked to my, myself included because it seems like that's something where you could have really if you're going to restart this program you you look at the you talk a lot about the sherry the the state of media not only in the state but this country it's somewhere something where if you restarted with the right person and the, and the right vision you could really make a difference in journalism in this country
0: yeah. It's yes what she actually said and I can't find her quote here but she said we we no longer have to tell both sides of the story yes. because yeah, one it. side of the story is illegitimate
2: yes. Yeah, so that,
0: that's just what Madison warned against. It
2: is what Madison. <laughs> she wanted to be
1: on against. Biden's disinformation board. I think is <laughs> how it that sounds.
2: rose in the '60s. The, what's called advocacy journalism—that it was not the job to be objective. The job was to advance justice, as the journalist sees it. And here we are.
1: Yeah, you know, and you think, you know, not to get down a rabbit hole on, on journalism, but when you growing up, I, you know, I'd watch Peter Jennings and Tim Russert and folks like that. Definitely not conservatives. But what I learned from them is they would hold no matter who, they were willing to hold power to account and make them accountable for the decisions they made good and bad. And and that just doesn't happen no. anymore in journalism, which is a real shame. And and that I think was the opportunity that A and M had but going with the with her, mm-hmm. they were never gonna they were never gonna reach that
0: what's and so they've circled wagons and that's why we're we're seeing all this pushback on DEI what is frustrating to me is a refusal to look at the problems i do i think here at TPPF we totally support getting more disadvantaged marginalized students into universities what's frustrating is that DEI with uh, it looks like they've been doing it for 15 years at A&M, UT, 15, 20 years, has made absolutely no difference. And, yeah. and
2: not only not made a difference, made things worse. Right. Make Well, look, how could you not, think of yourself as a student, you're going here to find out, learn about life, and get a job, get job training. And the first thing you learn is, uh, it's a stacked deck. And America's, uh, as, as uh, <clears throat> the lead editor, of the 1619 Project, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones says, America is racist in its DNA. I mean, that's telling people you don't have a chance if you're a woman, if you're African American, if you're Hispanic. It's a false narrative. It's demoralizing. Greg mentioned weaponizing diversity. That's, I mean, that's the whole point. Those who followed Marx argued that what was needed was uh, consciousness raising. And how do you, in other words, The Marxists after Marx were always uh, frustrated because they said these middle-class people, they're satisfied with getting some health care benefits and a decent wage. They're not the stuff of the revolution, so what do you do? And the answer was you have to raise their consciousness. How? Make them aware of their oppression. Too many university professors today see their job not as teaching but as consciousness raising.
1: Yeah, well, you know, A&M, one of the things their previous president got in in trouble with was she made them take down a DEI glossary, which included things like Christian privilege and all these other things that you know, doesn't it's, it goes right to your point. It's trying to raise consciousness of why I'm oppressed and why things don't work for me. And you know that's not a a the way that we want to teach our youth to go out into the world because if you are always oppressed, then then you're gonna live a very oppressed, sad and and, and lonely life. And you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, uh, the adage about the, the the carrot, the egg, and the coffee bean. And you put them yeah. into boiling water. And so the carrot goes in hard, but in the boiling water, it turns soft. The egg goes in uh, with a, a soft on the inside, a hard shell, and it comes out hard. Uh, but the coffee bean changes the water, right? And so what you want is you want people to go in and affect the culture and be coffee beans. But what we're doing is we're we're, we're forcing people to either go in hard and they're coming out soft or they're, they're going soft and coming out hard because we're just talking about their differences as opposed to saying, well, how do you start affecting? The culture of it and be a, a, a agent of change. If you want to see things change in the university, then go do that. But you can't do that by dividing everybody up. That's
0: right. You know, what What was so frustrating to me during the entire debate, and let's wrapping it up here, but I, I don't want us to get off without talking about this, was just a refusal to look at the problem. We've got the new NAEP. We know that what is it, 13% of 14-year-olds are yeah. uh, it's dropped 13 percent reading level of 14 year olds math has dropped nine percent And for african-americans it's double that Mm -hmm. what would fix that well i think what might fix it uh, or take a big leap toward fixing it would be school choice Mm -hmm. providing educational opportunities for students across the board and yet you know, DPPF B- B- has been demonized for our work in uh, fighting DEI and demonized in school choice, so it kind of has to make you wonder.
2: Yes,
1: absolutely. You know, and, and if you look at it, where school choice has been enacted in Florida, you know, the, they're, they're low income and minority students went from being what, 35th or so uh, and now they're number one You know, with school choice and what it does and the reason school choice is important is it, it kind of gets rid of that tyranny of low expectations and allows us to actually reach the potential of every student because the, the truth of the matter is right now in public schools, 19% of what's being taught is even on grade level. We're sandbagging kids and and, and then they're getting into college and they can't do it so then we're saying, oh, well, let's get rid of some of these requirements We maybe we shouldn't do the SAT or the ACT, or we don't right. need math requirements, so I think, no. <laughs> or, to or the be,
0: LSAT, or the LCAT. LSAT, Yeah,
1: or the MCAT, which is, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be honest, uh, uh, if, if I'm going to see a doctor, I want the best doctor, <laughs> you know, it's like if I'm flying a plane, I want the best pilot, I don't really uh, care much about their sexual orientation or their, their race, I want I want someone who is is the best at that. And and that is what has made America and the state so successful, is that we value merit and achievement and what is happening in our institutions of higher education where a lot of our teachers or where our teachers are coming from and then in our K through 12 system is is that our, our expectations are are just getting lower and lower and yes. lower and and ultimately our society is going to pay the price for that
2: unfortunately i have to agree that's right it's we our country's at a crossroads we can either restore colorblind meritocracy called for by the Declaration of Independence or we can embrace DEI but we can't have both right because there is irreconcilable as freedom and slavery are so in a sense we face the same crisis or a crisis of the same magnitude as was faced by Lincoln in the 1850s
0: Wow (laughs) well fortunately for you here at TPPF we are uh out on the battlefield on school choice watch this space we're moving forward on that uh next session we're going to continue to look at what's going on at our universities Dr. Lindsay and I and the rest of the higher ed team will be uh looking at our schools of education looking at the uh, uh responsibilities of our boards of regents looking at how we monitor this kind of nutty stuff that's going on on Texas campuses Tom, Greg, thank you for joining us today on 9th in Congress. It's great to have you. You can subscribe to the 9th in Congress podcast at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive the 9th in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, wwwtexaspolicy 9 Congress. Thank you.